0: Good morning, virtual congregation. Uh, my name is Scott Brazil, and I'm very grateful, super grateful, to get to bring God's word to you this week. Uh, a brief intro, since I know so many of you don't really know who I am. Our family moved here about four years ago from uh, northeastern Oregon, so I could study it at the seminary here. And for the 14 years before that, I was a pastor of a wonderful country church and uh, here's the town where we lived. Uh, The church was actually about 15 miles across the valley from there in a metropolis of 12,000 people, the biggest thing for a long ways. Our drive to North Carolina took three and a half days and we arrived mid-afternoon in mid-July on the hottest week of 2015. I think just so we could increase the fun of unloading our giant U-Haul and so that my children could look at me like, Dad, what have you done? We may have looked a little delirious when we arrived, but we've done a lot better lately, fitting into North Carolina. Those aren't really me and my children, by the way. Uh, we have eight children, and uh, many of whom are grown and scattered, but we had the opportunity of getting together in California this past October as I officiated my, my son's uh, wedding. Um, not quite the Von Trapp family and, and not quite the, the Kranz family either, but we are extremely blessed. And I uh, just want to let you know that's, that's me. Uh, that's me. Now you have some background for the face on your screen this morning. You know, I could not have asked for a better topic to address than the crosswork of Jesus. In the weeks leading up to today, Um, We've had the privilege of looking at various aspects of what Jesus deliberately accomplished in his crucifixion. Atonement Mosaic is a great title for this uh, to describe the multicolored centerpiece of God's plan to rescue sinners. So let's recall the pieces of that mosaic. We've looked at Christ our example, then Christ our victor, Christ our ransom and redeemer, Christ our curse. Last week, Pastor Larry showed us Christ our Savior and sin bearer. This week, we get to behold another significant piece of the atonement, Christ our substitute. And our main passage is going to be Isaiah. You may want to turn with me in your Bibles or your phones or what have you to Isaiah chapter 53, beginning at verse 4. The immediate context um, starts in chapter 52, where the Lord describes his servant Um, whom many students of Scripture have come to call God's suffering servant. Follow with me from Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 12. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. and there was no deceit in his mouth yet it was the will of the lord to crush him he was put he put has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt he shall prolong his uh, see his offspring he shall prolong his days the will of the lord shall prosper in his hand out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge Shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities? Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. May the Lord sink his word deep into our hearts this morning. Christ our substitute. The idea of substitution is simply that uh, one person takes the place of another or others for the benefit of those others in some way. And a few highlights from our passage would be, exa- for example, verse 4. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He has pierced Uh, was pierced for our transgressions, and so on. If you read through the passage, substitution is everywhere. And of course, we as Christians, now standing on this side of the cross of Christ, we know that the mysterious suffering servant of Isaiah is none other than Jesus. Seven centuries after Isaiah 53 It gets applied to Jesus by the New Testament writers. Jesus is the substitute for his people. But what exactly does this mean? What are we to make of this uh, idea of substitution? Uh, To be clear, I think we have to narrow down, narrow down what kind of substitution we're talking about. Because Jesus is the believer's substitute in many ways for many reasons, most of which involve some kind of a, a barrier. Uh, That our disobedience to God has put between us. And here's some examples of what I mean. Uh, One of the barriers of our sins is opposition to God. Contradicting our maker is exactly uh, uh, what sin is as we'll see in a moment. And since that conflict is uh, a barrier between us. Then our need is that big Bible word reconciliation. Having that hostility, that alienation removed so God, can, uh, God and man can be reconciled, brought back into this uh, harmonious friendship of peace. And, that, and so it's no accident that uh, Ephesians 2.14, for example, calls Jesus our peace. Uh, We can see the same pattern with other barriers. Our bondage to sin so enslaved us that we need redemption. We need to be set free from sin and Satan and the curse of the law. Here again, it's only Jesus as our substitute that can break those chains or remove that bondage barrier and set us free. In Mark 10.45, Jesus calls himself a ransom meaning the substitute payment who gave his life for our freedom. Another barrier is our guilt before God. As lawbreakers, we deserve the sentence of condemnation that says guilty. So our need is the opposite. We need need justification. We need the divine judge to remove our record of guilt and and then stamp it as righteous, justified, justified. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says Christ is our righteousness. Well, today the focus is on that last barrier, the problem of wrath from God. Our need then is to have that barrier removed by something the Bible calls propitiation, which we'll take a look at in a moment. But for now, note that here again, the Lord comes Uh, to our rescue as the needed substitute because verses like um, Romans 3.25, 1 John 4.10 describe Jesus as the propitiation. He is the propitiation for our sins. So friends, the solution to every sin problem, the, the breaker of every barrier that could keep us from God is Jesus, There are three points uh, I'd like to highlight this morning about Christ, our substitute in this last sense that we're talking about. Uh, First, our sin and guilt have earned the personal wrath of God. Second, God's son willingly absorbed God's wrath in place of God's people. And third, penal substitution demonstrates God's infinite love for his people. So we will tackle the hard news first. Our sin and guilt have earned us the personal wrath of God. This is a very unpopular, increasingly unpopular idea that God is angry and, and, and punishes people for doing bad things. Well, we have to ask ourselves, um, do our sins really anger God? Uh, Have our our thoughts and deeds really earned us his personal wrath? Our passage this morning in Isaiah 53 answers that really by describing how God's servant is treated in our place by God. So verse 4, for instance, uh, contains those infamous words that the servant was stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. Verse 5 says he was crushed for our iniquities. If there's any question about who crushed him, verse 10 says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Other very harsh expressions occur in this passage in which God punishes the sins of his people in this solitary servant. But is God's personal anger against sin just a strange blip in Isaiah? Is this kind of an anomaly in the scriptures? I would say no. Uh, From cover to cover, scriptures filled with uh, divine anger against sin. You see it uh, ramped up in a crescendo in the book of Revelation. Um, But let's recall how God's personal anger over sin began in the garden. With our first parents Adam and Eve when they both ate the fruit of the forbidden tree and tried to cover their guilty shame Uh, we read in Genesis 3 8 and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden now this traditional rendering where we get the phrase walking in the cool of the day might give someone the impression that God was taking a leisurely stroll through the garden. Perhaps he's whistling the Andy Griffith theme song. He has the fishing pole on his shoulder. He's uh, skipping stones across the pond. But I think that image would contradict what is really happening here. Adam and Eve had just eaten fruit that they were told uh, would bring them death. And they were hiding out of fear. They admit that two verses later because they heard the Lord coming. Now this verse is notoriously difficult to translate, but here's here's another couple options that scholars give us. Option B. And they heard the voice of the Lord God traversing the garden in the spirit of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves. Some scholars tie this phrase, uh, voice of the Lord, to the same phrase that you find in the, the uh, scene on Mount Sinai, where the voice of the Lord terrified the people. And they, they tell Moses, You talk to him, we don't want to. And phrases like traversing and, and uh, uh, spirit of the day, these would also conjure up images. Uh, God's people would understand these uh, as images of like the the glory cloud that followed the nation of Israel in, in fire and smoke and lightning and thunder, often associated with judgment, the law and God's holy presence. Option C, and they heard the roar of the Lord moving about in the garden in the wind of the storm. And the man and his wife hid themselves. Now this is a more interpretive translation by Old Testament scholar John Walton. He suggests it as a possibility. Now frankly, I, I, I don't know which one of these would be the best translation. But I just want to alert you to the fact that the context and the language here probably have less to do with Andy Griffith. And a lot more to do with a holy God responding to Uh, treason in his creatures with a kind of uh, awesome scariness, you might say. Remember, eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that's the name God gave it, it was not about gaining uh, some kind of inside information, chewing on this magic fruit. It, It was to contradict God. You see how our our personal, uh, how personal our sin gets with God. When we sin, we're saying to our maker, I dethrone you. I de-God you. You may be the creator and I just a creature, but I don't really agree with that reality. Uh, I will create my own private universe with me at the center so I can decide for myself What is good and evil? John Stott helps us understand the sinfulness of our disobedience. He says, sin is not a regrettable lapse from conventional standards. Its essence is hostility to God, Romans 8, 7. Issuing an active rebellion against him. It has been described in terms of getting rid of the Lord God in order to put ourselves in his place in a haughty spirit of God-almightiness. If you want an easy-to-remember but profound definition, uh, John Stott writes, sin is the contradiction of God. That's very revealing. Cuts to the heart of the problem. Sin is the contradiction of God. Of God. It was Satan's temptation to Adam and Eve that they would become like God if they disobeyed God. But it it turned out to be even worse. They became anti God, they became contra God. What's astonishing about this scene? Adam and Eve were spared the full on wrath of God in the garden that day. They did. They did die spiritually that day. Their hiding out of fear shows that. And they they would die bodily. Genesis would later talk about that, uh, record their deaths. But their eternal death, God's judgment of wrath, uh, what Jesus would later call the the fiery Gehenna, fiery hell, was now uh, delayed and it was made avoidable because God had put in place a rescue plan. As he mentions just a few verses later during his judgment on the serpent, in Genesis 3.15, God tells the satanic snake, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so we see here the woman's offspring would stomp on the serpent's head. That's an image of a death blow. But in that stomp, the serpent would deliver his poison into the heel of the son. A less certain image, but also likely producing a death as well. And we know now, of course, that the promised seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus, he did suffer death And through that death, uh, he absorbed sin's penalty. Let's look now at a second point. This is God's son willingly absorbed God's wrath in place of God's people. The prophecy of Isaiah 53 doesn't actually use the title God's son but there is clearly a unique relationship between God and the servant here and we see hints of of an agreement or sort of teamwork going on in verse 12 uh, where God says therefore I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors wow because the the servant willingly suffers God's death penalty for sin you see here he's being treated like the transgressors deserving that death God then rewards the servant with the spoils of war so to speak that doesn't make much sense of course unless he's alive after he dies But this verse implies a kind of pre-arrangement between God and his servant and, and the servant willingly suffers not just to evoke some kind of pity but he does it on behalf of his people's sins. Verse 11 is key. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. So maybe more than any other uh, verse in this passage, um, this one reveals this special aspect of God's substitution that we've been focusing on. It is often called penal substitution because it's removing the penalty of our sin and guilt for breaking God's law. Surely uh, Jesus' anguish, if you read the, the phrasing here, Jesus' anguish of soul as he sweat drops of blood in the prayer the night before his crucifixion, pleading if possible for another way And, and the cry of abandonment on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Surely these demonstrate the pain he was experiencing in absorbing God's fury against our sins until it was spent on him and he cried out, It is finished. Some people struggle uh, with the idea of Christ as our penal substitute. But from the beginning, God was preparing the human race to understand it. It's embedded in history. With fig leaves, Adam and Eve, they tried to... uh, Cover their nakedness their shame before God Uh, But when God delayed his judgment Part of the temporary reprieve for them Was that God had a better idea for clothing Verse 1 of Genesis 3 We read and the Lord God made for Adam and his wife Garments of skins and clothed them This is curious He could have just made them clothes out of nothing where did the animal skins come from well innocent victims met their violent deaths instead of the two sinners who had deserved to die so right away the wrath of God is symbolically appeased we might say when he delayed his death penalty for the humans and carried it out on the substitute animals that was the lesson for generation one gen 2 comes along Cain and Abel Genesis 4 verses 2 through 5 we read now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground in the course of time Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Now John Steinbeck, in his novel, "East of Eden," has, has his characters in that, that novel mulling over this Bible scene and uh, uh, the problem of you know one brother being accepted and one being rejected. And in the novel, the character Samuel Hamilton gives the explanation well, even God can have a preference, can't he? But that's really not an answer. That's kind of a half answer. It's saying, it's saying that God likes what he likes, arbitrarily, without reason. But we have to remember that for any uh, Israelite reading the story of Abel's and Cain's offerings, God's response is obvious. It's crystal clear to them. Of course Abel's sacrificed lamb was accepted because every Israelite uh, reader of Genesis would know the lamb took the death penalty for Abel's sins. Cain, however, presented no substitute. Only the fruits of his own labor. Abel understood penal substitution. And the first readers of the Hebrew Bible, our Old Testament, would know the story of Isaac and how how, uh, God had provided a ram in place of Abraham's son, in place of the only son whom he loved, the passage says. Furthermore, all the readers of of, uh, the Old Testament knew the story of the Passover too, God had told the Israelites wanting freedom from Egyptian slavery to put the blood of a slaughtered lamb on their doorposts so that when the angel of death came to their house he would pass over it without killing the firstborn of the house. So the death of a substitute preserved the life of a sinner. How else do we know this? The entire sacrificial system that God commanded uh, uh, the Israelites to practice reminded them over and over that they needed a substitute to take the death penalty for their sins. And of course the animal sacrifices at the tabernacle and at the temple, um, they were perpetual and they never really gave the basis for forgiveness of sins because no animal could take the place of a human and no human had ever uh, been perfect it could could uh, be a substitute for any other Israelite so all of this continued over and over particularly with Yom Kippur the day of atonement uh, unblemished animals slaughtered year upon year the penalty of death for sinners carried out the picture of a substitute taking God's wrath for God's people was built into the fabric of history and until Jesus came and made his once for all sacrifice as as we read in chapters 9 and 10 of the book of Hebrews um, nothing else could satisfy God's justice nothing could fulfill his righteousness against our sins jesus gave up his life god's wrath was no longer delayed there it was it was poured out personally jesus took it willingly he became flesh human nature he absorbed the wrath of god he drank the bitter cup charles spurgeon preached He has not merely sipped from the cup of wrath, not merely tasted a portion of its bitter draught, but he has drained it to the very dregs. Ere he died, he turned the cup of wrath bottom upwards, for he had taken all it contained. And when he saw that there was not a single black drop trembling on the brim, he exclaimed with the loud voice of triumph, it is finished. He had drunk the whole. One of the pushbacks against the idea of penal substitution, and uh, you will hear this if you're a Christian long enough, is the apparent impersonal, uh, legal, harsh, dry, unloving nature of it all. Can't, can't God just forgive, you know? Uh, what about his love? Wrath and love are, are contradictions of each other, right? Well, your life can be revolutionized, I think, when you understand that it's just the opposite. God's wrath and love are not contradictions, but complements of each other. So now let's go to our third point. Penal substitution demonstrates God's infinite love for his people. How does God's holy anger demonstrate his love? Well, sometimes it's good to start with the opposite of something, uh, to to clarify a point. So ask, what if God were never angry at sin? What What if he never punished the guilty nor aggressively opposed it? Croatian theologian Miroslav Volf wrestled with that thought. He says, I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love and God loves every person and every creature. But that's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a, a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over three million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed, my people shelled day in and day out, some of them brutalized beyond imagination and I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda. In the last decade of the past century where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? Doting on the perpetrators as a grand, in a grandparently fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrator's basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. And like Miroslav, Wolf, many of us recoil, I think, at the at the thought of God's being angry until we realize that a, a God who never opposed sin could could never be a loving or good God at all. Unfortunately, we also tend to think of God's wrath as being like our own, until we uh, think a little more deeply. John Stott points out that our anger is usually provoked by injured vanity we we have wrath when our pride is wounded but God's anger is always 100% of the time provoked by evil so his responses are never arbitrary and spiteful they're always just and good Michael Reeves writes with this God It is not as if sometimes he has love and sometimes has wrath as if those are different moods so that when he's feeling one, he's not feeling the other. No, for all eternity, the father was loving his son but never once was he angry. Why? Because there was nothing to be angry with until Adam sinned in Genesis 3. So God's anger at evil from Genesis 3 onwards is a new thing. It is how the God who is love responds to evil. So love responds to evil with wrath. It opposes it, battles, subdues it, ultimately punishes it to rescue loved ones. This is exactly how uh, propitiation passages in the Bible work. Consider the relationship between God's love and wrath in the two passages that, that come next here, Romans 5, 8 and 9. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And first John four ten. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So we see in the Romans passage, the way God demonstrates his love for sinners like you and me is by saving us from the future judgment, the the eternal wrath we deserve. And the way he did this is by sacrificial death. Jesus, uh, who took that wrath in our place, The passage in 1 John is just as clear. The way God has loved us is by sending his son to appease his own wrath against our sins. That's what propitiation means. It's satisfaction of God's holy anger against our sins that was spent, you see, no longer delayed. It was spent on Jesus, our substitute, until it was exhausted on him and therefore removed from us. There are many parallels of substitution in the human world. One such story occurred when the Japanese military was using allied prisoners to build a road through Thailand during World War II and when one shovel was unaccounted for at the end of the day, the guard in charge furiously began yelling, All die! All die! And he's pointing his gun into the, to the group of prisoners. Immediately, a, a Scottish soldier stepped forward and claimed responsibility for the missing shovel and promptly had his head beat in. He died a bloody death. When everyone got back to camp, the shovels were counted again and none were actually missing. But one man gave his life so that the others could live. Similarly, in Auschwitz death camp when several prisoners were selected for execution, one of them shouted that he was a married man with children. And a Polish priest, Father Colby, stepped forward and asked if he could take the condemned man's place. His offer was accepted and he was thrown into an underground dungeon and left there to starve. And I I recently read the case in the news of a 72-year-old man in Italy suffering from coronavirus and he gave up his respirator he said for someone younger who could have a chance to live so in these stories uh, we see how love is demonstrated by substitution Uh, when a man substitutes his life that others might live But as inspiring as they all are, they do pale in comparison, don't they? They pale in comparison with our divine substitute who was willing to absorb punishment that we deserved. In fact, it was his own justice against evil. This, all this to bring us back to God. Only the Son of God is qualified to be our substitute if he loves us enough. And he demonstrated that he does. So there's no contradiction between God's love and God's wrath. They're like um, light and heat from the sun, constant. Just two complementary aspects of the same constant God. John Piper puts it this way. If God were not just, there would be no demand for his son to suffer and die. And if God were not loving, there would be no willingness for his son to suffer and die. But God is both just and loving. Therefore, his love is willing to meet the demands of his justice. Friends, I hope on this Palm Sunday, approaching now Good Friday, the day Christ, our substitute, removed the barriers caused by our sins that you will think very deeply about Christ as your penal substitute and you'll think very deeply about the infinite love God has for you. Let's pray together. Lord God, we are astounded and humbled, we are in awe of what it cost you to buy us back, to pay the price, to suffer in our place that we might live, that we might be called children of God and enjoy fellowship with you forever. Lord, continue to have mercy on us for not un- understanding this enough, for not recognizing for not living in response to this in a way that would honor you god help us to be thankful and to walk thankfully every day for christ our substitute we ask this in his most precious name amen